So have you ever got to that place where you're just ready for it to all go away, where it's just ready to all burn, right? I remember this one time, Jane and I, we were trying to get a house. And so we were going to make an investment on this land, and we thought the smart thing to do was put this mobile home out there for a little bit and, and kind of get established, and then we were going to build a house and do this. Well, let me tell you, it was a disaster. It was awful. It was terrible. And, uh, and all I wanted is we just sunk deeper and deeper and got further and further behind in this thing is just, just give up and for it to go away. But we've all had situations like that, right? Where it's just messed up beyond all recognition. Just, just make it go away. It's easy to read our text this week that way. It's easy for us to look at the story of Noah, the story of the flood, the story of the, of the rainbow, and just think it's God being frustrated. It's God looking at his creation and going, well, that didn't work, and just wiping it all out and starting over. And there is an element of that. I'm not going to deny there's... There is a certain amount of truth to that interpretation. But there's something deeper, and there's something more powerful, and there's something, I believe, that is much more applicable for our situation as we do this. Now, we're looking at the text in Genesis and this kicks off our year in the narrative lectionary, how we decide what we're going to study. For the last two years, for the main course of the spring and the fall, we've been following this thing called the narrative lectionary. And I want to take a minute just, just to explain again why we are doing this. Because we've done different things at different times. If you've been here for any length of time, you know that we took time to go through Paul's letters chronologically. For three years, we walked through the Pauline epistles in the order that, that it seems most logical that they were written. Fantastic time, incredible learning and insight. We followed that by doing the, the Gospels synoptically, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and putting them in order of how they were written, how they play off one another, and what they could teach us. It was kind of like looking at the Gospel in 3D. It was really profoundly encouraging, and we learned a lot. And then for the past two years, we've been going through using the narrative lectionary, which is, in a way, it's, it's kind of the opposite. Whereas with the Pauline epistles and the synoptic gospels, we were drilling very deep in very specific locations. The narrative lectionary is this broad overview. It takes us, every year, it takes us from Genesis to Revelation. And so what that helps us do as we are fostering and encouraging and nurturing our active gospel imaginations is we're, we're going from a close-up view, kind of from looking through a microscope to looking through a telescope. And it helps us understand our position. I had, had an Old Testament professor in seminary, and uh, he was an amateur astronomer. And he loved to talk about the galaxies and the universe. And he was married to a molecular research biologist who studied things even beyond the smallest level, down to the very particles, the, the things that make up atoms. 
And so he said, I'm, I'm married to a woman who studies the smallest things in the universe, and I like to study the biggest things in the universe. And he said, now you can't really prove it, but if you look at it, and maybe someone can correct me, I know we've got people who deal more with this, but from his estimation in talking with his wife, he said a human being is about halfway in between those two things. That it, in the matter of size, from the smallest thing to the largest thing, human beings about halfway between that. When we look at these things, it helps us get perspective. When we look at the big picture, it helps us gain perspective for the majesty, for the arc of the story, for knowing where things started, where things are going. And then we look at the small things, help us understand the detail and the design, the intention and the beauty, the intricacies of these details with that. And again, if we're merely studying the Bible for information, you may already know all this. You may know, you may know every story we're going to share this year. You may be familiar with everything that we've done. But we're not studying for more information. We're studying to be reminded of things we know, but then to go deeper into it. And just like we did with Discovering Grace, we're, we're looking at this to measure ourselves against it. Are we living up to the message? You may know the message, we may know the message, but are we living up to it? How is it reflected in our life? So this year it's going to be really exciting as we go through Again, starting today in Genesis and end up at the end of the spring, again, touching into Revelation with that. But we start today, last year we started with creation, this year we start with frustration. We start with a text that exhibits God's frustration with God's creation. But in the midst of that frustration, two things are introduced. Two things that are introduced that are elemental to our understanding of what it means to be a Christian. That are foundational to our very faith. And those two things are grace and covenant. Well... Let's get into the text. And, and I'm going to be reading from various parts in Genesis, so instead of showing the text, I want you to listen, and I want you to use the images to help open your imagination to being what is said. But the Lord saw the wickedness of humankind had become great on earth. Every inclination of the thoughts of their minds was only evil at the time. The Lord regretted that he had made humankind on the earth, and he was highly offended. So the Lord said, I will wipe out humankind whom I've created from the face of the earth, from every, everything from humankind to animals, including creatures that move on the ground and birds of the air, for I regret that I have made them. That sounds pretty dire, right? I mean, that's a pretty strong statement when God literally says, I repent of my creation. That word regret is closely aligned to the word that we use for repentance. Is he's literally sorry that he did it with that. And you have to ask, what kind of, what kind of destruction, what did he see on the earth that would cause God 
to have such an emotion with that. And when you start to look at that, you have to start to understand the incredible responsibility that this puts on us as human beings. You see, the destruction of the earth is a direct result of the violence and the corruption of us, of human beings. This is not very many chapters removed from the fall in the garden. And that violence and corruption fills the earth and destroys it long before the waters cover it. You see, it's easy for us to think of the earth being destroyed by the flood. No. The earth was already destroyed by our violence and corruption. We're going to see the flood is actually more of a cleansing. The flood is much more of a restoration. The destruction here is not by God's hand. It's by ours in this. And when we start to talk in sin, of sin in terms of personal morality, it's just my choice, it's what I get to do with my body wherever I am, we totally misunderstand the far-reaching and catastrophic effects of sin that extend far beyond human beings, but even into nature. The commentary that goes along with the text this week says this, says this use of the same word to describe both sin and punishment, because in the Hebrew where it talks about sin and punishment, it is the same word. Human evil results in punishment, or better, consequences of that evil. If we take the Bible as a witness, not only does punishment fit the crime, the punishment grows out of the crime. In other words, as a modern saying puts it, We are punished not so much for our sins as by our sins. In the flood, human corruption leads to the corruption of the earth itself, and that is the punishment. The flood is the answer to that. Well, let's keep going. But Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a godly man. He was blameless among his contemporaries. He walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Okay, so we see here that the, the hero of the story is, is a human being, right? The hero of the story is Noah because Noah's blameless. Noah's kind of Superman. Noah, man, he's got three sons. That means he's, he, his, his family is fruitful, and he's blameless with all his characters and somebody with all his contemporaries. Somebody needs to stand up and take charge. Man, that's Noah, right? Hang on. Careful. I know you think I'm trapping you. And I am. Because it's easy to think. You stop there. It's easy to think this about Noah, right? Like God was this big fat meanie. He was going to wipe everybody else, but he couldn't because Noah actually was a good guy. And so he backed off because there was something good in Noah. No, 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 no. Remember what happens as soon as the ark settles in the mud and they open up the door? Y'all remember what happens? Noah's drunk and naked, baby. (laughs) I mean, he's out there showing it all off, drunk out of his mind. 
And the, and the, the sons are putting on a show, charging admission to see dad make a fool out of himself. Dad turns around and starts cursing his sons. He's only got three of them. Not a lot of people on the earth, and he starts cursing them. I mean, that's hardly the guy that you want to be the Savior, right? But that's Noah. So what's, what's happening here? Well, if we look at this, we're going to find a word, a word that is very dear to us. And that word here in the Hebrew is favor. In the Greek, it becomes charis, and that word is grace. Noah found grace. He didn't earn this, but Noah, as a representative of all of us, is identified as the first one in the Bible to receive grace. That's, that's the thing here that we're going to see. And now God is going to emphasize this in a minute. So let's keep going. The earth was ruined in the sight of God. The earth was filled with violence. God saw the earth, it was indeed, and indeed it was ruined. So again, the flood doesn't destroy the earth. Sin does. Man doesn't save the earth. God does. So God said to Noah, I have decided that all living creatures must die, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Now I'm about to destroy the earth. Make for yourself an ark of cypress wood, which he does. He puts it out there, and he says, put the animals on it. He calls the animals. Noah doesn't do anything. Noah just stands there. Animals come at response. And he goes on, and he says this. Everything that is on the earth will die, but I will confirm my covenant with you. Now here's the first time in the Bible we get this word, covenant. It's fascinating. We, we, were just, we, were, we were in awe in the teaching team as we were looking at, and we saw how these two ideas that are so central to our faith, that are so central to everything that it means to be a Christian, Grace and covenant are introduced at the same time and introduced into the midst of a world that is destroyed by sin as has never been experienced before and really since. Like we can't underestimate the destruction that had been wreaked on creation at this point in the story by us. And yet, at what may be the lowest point of humanity, God introduces the two essential ideas for our salvation, grace and covenant. He says, you are going to enter the ark You and your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you, you must bring onto the ark two of every kind of living creature from all flesh, male and female, to keep them alive with you. We see God again. His salvation is not just for us, but it is for all creation. It's easy to miss that, and we cannot miss it. This is for the flourishing of all creation that this happens. 
of the birds after their kinds, of the cattle after their kinds, of the creeping things on the ground after its kind. Two of every kind must come so that you can keep them alive. And you must take for yourself the, every kind of food that, it is, that is eaten, gather it together. It will be food for them and for you. And Noah did all that God commanded. He did indeed. Now, let's, let's stop for a minute on this idea of covenant because we're going to talk a lot about it over the next few weeks. We're going to encounter covenant in a number of varieties, in a number of ways, in a number of different kinds of covenant. Well, the first thing we need to understand about covenant, it, it is not a contract. This is not a contract as we understand it. It is not something we deserve. It is not something we earn. It is not something we merit. Covenant is very different. We, we deal contractually with one another. Even in our most deepest, most intimate, most loving relationships, there is still that idea, I deserve it. I deserve for her to be nice to me. I deserve for him to give me those things. I deserve for respect. I deserve this thing because of what we've done, that we've earned it. Even, even in our most intimate Marital and familial relationships, it's so hard for us as human beings to break free of that idea of contractual relationship. Covenant is the antidote to that. Covenant is, is the antithesis, in a way, of contractual. It's not something we can ever buy, and it's nothing we have to beg for. It's also something we can never lose, that we can never reject with that. And here, as, I've been, as I've, we've been contemplating, and this is not the definition, because we've got different people who are going to teach over the next few weeks, and each one encountering covenant, I'm, I'm just really looking forward to the insight that we have on this. But as I looked at this, I thought, in this context here, covenant is the explicit promise of grace. Covenant here, when God says, I'm making a covenant with you, that is the explicit promise of favor, of grace. Well, let's keep going. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window. He had made the ark and sent out a raven. It kept flying back and forth until the waters had dried up on the earth. And Noah sent out a dove to see if the waters had receded from the surface of the ground. The dove could not find a racing place for its, feet, for its feet because the water still covered the surface of the entire earth. So it returned to Noah on the ark. He stretched out his hand, took the dove, and brought it back into the ark. He waited seven more days and then sent out a dove again from the ark, and the dove returned to him. In the evening, it, there was a freshly plucked olive leaf in its beak. Noah knew that the waters had receded from the earth. He waited another seven days and sent the dove out again, but it did not return this time. Later on it says, God said to Noah and his sons, Look, I now confirm my covenant with you and your descendants after you and the living creatures that is with you, including the birds, the domestic animals, every living creature on the earth with you. All those who came out of the ark with you, every living creature on the earth. I confirm my covenant with you. Never again will all the living things be wiped out. Listen to this. Never again will all the living things be wiped out by the waters of the flood. Never again will the flood destroy the earth. And God said, this is the 
the guarantee of the covenant I am making with you and every living creature, a covenant for all subsequent generations. I will place my rainbow in the clouds, and it will become a guarantee of the covenant between me and the earth. We need that, don't we? We need more than just information. We need signs. We need something we can see. We need something we can taste. We need something we can touch. We don't just... Words sometimes are just not enough. We need something more. And in this idea of covenant, because we're all desperate for grace, we all need grace, we're all dependent on grace, but it's, also, it's almost impossible for us to believe it's there. So we need a sign of that covenant. Now, you may be thinking, well, okay, I get it. I understand what you're saying, that Noah found favor, but what about everybody else? I mean, great for Noah, tough on the rest, right? Well... Honestly, what I see in this, and and it's taken a while as I've meditated with this, where I see grace in the flood is actually God is the one who's taking the hit. It's God's creation, y'all. It's easier for us to think of the earth as ours. My land, I own it. My place, it's not. The earth is God's. And for God to do something as dramatic as cover it with water to restore it, because that's the ultimate goal, yes, there is destruction, but the goal, the telos, is restoration. We see God doing something dramatic to something that God loves. God is agreeing here to suffer with. God is showing us the mystery of our own salvation also that is going to come through our own flooding the flooding of baptism. Don't mistake, this is a tremendous sign of what takes place also in each of our lives when we ourselves are flooded in baptism and restored. And where is the grace in the rainbow? Well, this is the tangible grace, the promise that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons Neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. At least that's how the author of Romans understood it centuries later. The promise of the rainbow is a promise that that we have found favor. Not that we might find favor, not that we could find favor. Not that if we work hard enough, we'll get favor. Not that if if we're better looking or richer or smarter or more humble or whatever. No. It's a promise you have found favor. You have found grace. It has been given to you and to us. And we cannot lose it. Here's the thing, there's something better than a clean slate. There's something better than just making the bad stuff just go away and ignoring it, forgetting it, never to come back. 
And that's redemption. It's harder. It's harder because we can't do it ourselves. It's almost impossible to imagine. We can so clearly imagine the things that we destroy, the things that we muck up, the things that we are bad at, the things that we lose. We all understand that. But to really have faith that God can take even that, even that thing in your life, even that thing in our world that seems impossible to fix, that we would just want to be wiped out, never to be spoken of again, even that God can redeem? Even that God can restore? That's, that's something different altogether, y'all. Julian of Norwich was a 14th century English anchoress. She had a gift for having visions and writing them down. She called them showings. These writings, these visions that she has, had or have been passed down for generations. In one of them, she was praying, and as she was praying, she looked down and she saw something in her hand. It was about the size of a hazelnut, or this acorn. It was round, it was ball, and as she looked at it in her vision, she asked God, what is this that is in my hand? And in her understanding, she's very clear, she, does, she doesn't say God spoke to me, she says, in my understanding, I began to understand that God said, this is all that is made. And as she contemplated that, as she looked at the the thing in her hand, she began to worry. Began to be concerned because she goes, it's so small. It's so fragile. If this is all that is made, it's in danger. And then again to her understanding, she understood it will last and it will ever last because I love it. Y'all, covenant will last and it will ever last because God loves us and he loves his name and he loves his creation. In the story of Noah, we can look into the worst of human depravity we can look at the most toxic effects of our sin, of our sinfulness, of our violence, of our war, of our ignorance, of our idiocy. We can see the full effect of that. And at the same time know that God's love, God's purpose, God's people will last and we will ever last because God loves us. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. As we transition to this time of the table, um, when we encounter 
the covenant of God. We are encountering the love and the grace and the power of God. It's as tangible and as solid as the wood on this table, as the crunch of the cracker, as the tannin in the cup. And it is as ephemeral as the showing of a rainbow, the rise of hope in the midst of despair, and the last reverberations of the last sweet song. It is as present right now as your own breath, and as eternal and as limitless as the heavens that surround us. It is both and. So as we come into this time now to take this table, to come to this table, understand this tangible, solid expression of covenant, of grace that has been given to us. And then let it do that mystical thing in you to renew you, to transform your mind, to transform your spirit, to renew your hope in the God who loves us. Thank you for being here this morning. Thank you.